Today's reading is out of 1 Peter 2, 11 through 17. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to the praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning. Good to see you, good to be with you today. Welcome to Disciples Church. My name is Jonathan Mosier, and I have the privilege and honor of getting to open up the Word of God with you and for you today. So if you're not already there, please turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. Well, I was born and raised in Wisconsin my whole life. I was born in Beaver Dam. Uh, grew, the, grew up the first couple years of my life, years that I really don't remember, if I'm honest with you, in Horicon, Wisconsin. And then ultimately my family moved to Greendale, kind of on the southwest corner of Milwaukee, which is really where I grew up. And, uh, and, and, and for, as I was thinking about it this week, I thought, you know, for my whole life, almost every moment that I've lived has taken place within a 35-mile diameter of where I currently live, which is kind of an odd concept when you think about it. And uh, despite all of my upbringing in Wisconsin, for the most part, I've been able to avoid the thick Wisconsin accent that you sometimes here. Not entirely, and I'm, I'm very cautious even as I say this, because now I'm trying to actively think about the words and how I'm saying them to make sure I'm not undoing my own illustration as I speak. But for the most part, I've avoided that kind of thick Wisconsin accent, largely due to my parents. My parents grew up out west. My, my mom's from Colorado. My dad's from Wyoming. And so they had made it their mission in life, uh, at least in part, that as kids we were not going to have that thick accent. And so I remember very particularly being corrected that it was milk and not milk, that it was bag and not big, and perhaps most importantly that it was water fountain and not bubbler. And I realize that that's anathema to some of you, and that's all right. We can have differences of opinion on that. That's a, a, a war, by the way, that continues on in my family today, a war I'm losing actively with my children, who now refer to it as a bubbler. But by and large, I've avoided some of those kind of linguistic pitfalls, as they may be. I think my mother's efforts largely paid off. But try as I might, particularly as the years go on and as it becomes clear that I'm not leaving anytime soon, at least not by any plan of my own. I find that accent slipping into my language more and more. I find my O's becoming more and more elongated. I, I realized recently that my A's uh, are changing a little bit in, for, in form and that the word ya yeah is now a regular part of my vocabulary. You just see these things start to slip in over time. And my wife likes to point out that in particular, when I'm speaking to somebody, not to be stereotypical, but somebody who maybe is from the south side of Milwaukee, who grew up in the area, might be an elderly person from that particular region, that my Wisconsin accent comes out in full form. 
I just, it just comes out and I can't, I can't help it. And that's not a shot at you if you're an elderly person from the south side of Milwaukee, by the way. You're my, you're my people, right? But why is it that for all of my efforts to the contrary, I have unwittingly experienced this adaptation? It's because I'm surrounded by it constantly. And whatever culture surrounds us inevitably begins to seep into our consciousness. And what Peter is going to say in this text today is that that's not just true of us culturally, it's also true of us spiritually. After having explained in verse 9 last week that our, our bloodline, our citizenship, our divine occupation, our belonging comes from God and rests in God, Peter now tells us how we ought to live in the present world. He's going to say because of who you are and because of who God has made you, the family you've been adopted into, the new country, as it were, that you've been given as your home and your citizenship, you now have a responsibility to live in a particular way here and now. And so over the next several weeks, we're going to look at several different applications of that same idea from the book of 1 Peter, beginning this morning in verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles... Now, right off the bat, Paul, Peter rather gives us this language that's going to define how it is that we're to interact with the world around us. He says, if you belong to God, necessarily you are different than the world around you. And he uses two words to describe this. They're related words, but they're different. Peter says, by virtue of the new birth, you now find yourselves to be sojourners and exiles here. Sojourners speaks to the, to the attitude that we have. He's saying you're visitors, you're travelers, you're passing through. You realize that this place is not your long-term destination. It's not your long-term home. It's not the place that you're going to find your ultimate belonging. And that word exile refers to your status. He's saying you're a temporary resident, a resident alien, as it were, in a foreign place. So to paraphrase one commentator that I read this week, if you're a resident alien in any other country, you would certainly go into that culture trying to honor the customs of that country, trying to follow the rules and the laws of that country, but you wouldn't expect, nor would you largely be expected, to personally adopt the religion or the moral code of that country. Peter says in the very same way, that's how it applies to our lives. We come into this world again, reborn in, in and through the Spirit, given new life, the new birth, and when we're born again in Jesus Christ, we have a new home, a new family, a new belonging that informs our outlook. Now, here's how he says that begins to apply to your life. Verse 11, I urge you, therefore, to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Now, this is interesting because he's kind of juxtaposing this, this duality that we experience in the here and now. We're sojourners and exiles. We no longer belong to ourselves. We have a new home and a new family, but still the temptations and the passions of the old flesh, our old life prior to knowing Jesus Christ, the, the temptations of this world still have an appeal to us in a very real way. In other words, our residency being permanent residents of heaven, having our citizenship in heaven, belonging to God, do not, do not dismiss us from the temptations that we're going to experience in this life. And in fact, he says, in many ways, the world around you has a particular temptation for you because of its familiarity, because of the fact that it's, it's been something you've been exposed to. Those temptations are familiar and perhaps even comforting in the pull that they have on your life. 
And the whole reason that happens is because we used to be of this world, to use the language that's used in 1 John chapter 4. The world functions in a way that's recognizable to us. We're tempted to live in a way that we used to live prior to knowing Jesus or that we naturally would live if it wasn't for the work of Jesus in in our lives. The world, in other words, has a natural fleshly appeal to us. And Peter says, even though the world around you has this true temptation and offers real pleasures, fleeting pleasures of course, but real pleasures to be experienced here, even though those temptations come along, your relationship to that world as a resident alien is now different. How in the world do we understand that and what does that look like? Well, it made me think this week of the story of St. Augustine. St. Augustine is one of the great philosophers and theologians in all Christendom. He was a a theologian and and a bishop in the fourth century, and he told in one particular writing about his conversion and the change that it had in his life. And he said, prior to conversion, I was by all intents and purposes a philanderer. He had all kinds of girlfriends and mistresses. He had all kinds of relationships that were inappropriate. That just marked his life. It was part of the pleasures in which he lived. It was the thing that appealed to him. It was the familiar pull of the world around him, and that actually marked his life. But he wrote curiously about one particular incident in which he had returned to a city that he had previously frequented where one of his old girlfriends lived, but it was just after his conversion. And he said that as he was walking down the street one day, he saw this woman approach. She recognized him, ran to him, and greeted him, and talked to him. And he was pleasant in his exchange with her and had a conversation with her. He was friendly, certainly, but then he just continued on in his way. And this woman was totally flummoxed. She knew Augustine. She'd had a relationship with him. They had had a physical relationship together. She had been his girlfriend for all intents and purposes. And so she was confused by the fact that he walked away and that things hadn't gone the direction that she had expected. And it occurred to her, you know, it's been a while since I've seen Augustine. Maybe he just didn't recognize, recognize me. So she called out to him and she said, Augustine, it is I. And Augustine turned and looked at her and he said, I know, but it is not I. Well, what happened in that moment? Here is this familiar woman in a familiar surrounding. He knew the pleasures that were being offered, but his relationship to those pleasures had changed. He was no longer the same person that he had once been. He had a new identity. He had new passions. The things that stirred his affections, the things that drove him and motivated him were now different. And he knew in that moment that to engage in that old lifestyle was going to war against his very soul. His identity had shifted. His alliances had changed. His joys were now found in something otherworldly, something entirely different. In other words, he was no longer at home. And that application is as true for us today in the 21st century as it was for Augustine in the 4th century and Peter in the 1st century. Because the order of the day, the current culture in which we live, is that whoever you are and however you feel and whatever it is that motivates, excites, or identifies you, whatever seems right to you, ought not only be tolerated by everybody else, but celebrated. And when you begin to operate without the recognition of a divine ethical framework, you are inevitably left with an arbitrary and fluid moral code. In other words, your perspective on the world will just seamlessly adapt to 
to the mindset of those who are around you. And it's going to look different for everybody in this room. Everyone in this room has different natural fleshly predilections and desires. There are certain things that in your flesh you're going to be drawn to, you're going to be tempted by, you're going to be attracted to. And if you believe that your home is first and foremost in this world, you will inevitably adopt the amoral framework that surrounds you. But when, as a Christian, you discover that those passions wage war against your soul, that they that the temptations and the passions of the flesh actually cut away at the very fabric of who God has created you to be and called you to be and enabled you to be, necessarily your relationship to those temptations is going to change. And notice here that Peter isn't even beginning to address the behaviors of your lifestyle at this point. He's merely talking about your passions, your affections, your desires, the temptations that come, come along. He's merely talking about the things that tempt you and the way that you think about them. In other words, do you realize the extent to which the brokenness of sin has affected our minds. We tend to think of our religious observance or our obedience to God or our moral behavior or however you want to frame it. We, we tend to think of it purely in terms of behavior. But what Peter is saying here is, in actuality, it goes down to the very root of what it is that motivates, drives you, and that to which you're drawn. Peter's saying, I don't just want you to abstain from poor behavior though he's going to address that in the following verse. But what he says is, I want you to abstain even from entertaining the passions that are inconsistent with your new identity. In other words, there is inherently something sinful when we even entertain the notion of sinning. Have you ever considered that? Because in the entertainment of that notion, you are contemplating and running a scenario in your mind of how pleasurable it might be for you to ignore what God has otherwise communicated, you, communicated to you to do. You're drawn in by your own indulgence. It's what Jeremiah 17 speaks about when it says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can even understand it? So how then do we avoid that mentality? Well, Peter's not going to give us a, a long excursus on this, but fortunately Paul does in the book of Ephesians chapter 4. Here's what he says beginning in verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. In other words, those who do not believe and trust and know Jesus Christ. That you do not walk in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding. They're alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. And notice what he says there, by the way. He doesn't even say that's not the way you learned in Christ or from Christ. He says that is not the way you learned Christ. It's not consistent with who Christ has made you to be. Verse 21, assuming that you've heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Listen to this verse. And to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Here, Paul says the only way to abstain from the passions of the flesh is to be renewed in the spirit of your mind. To be renewed means to be the passive recipient of the work of Christ. It happens to you. 
as you remember your new identity, as you find yourself to be in Christ, as you're reminded of your new home, so that when those temptations of the flesh come about, you can say, along with Augustine, it is not I. You're no longer speaking sin to the same person that you once knew. So abstain from fleshly desires, but also, verse 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Now we're tempted here to immediately look at at, at verse 12 and to forget what we just heard in verse 11. Particularly, by the way, this is a warning for those of you that are doers in the room, right? If you're a list maker, if you're a check maker, if you're one who wants to know, just tell me the things to do. I'll mark them off the list. I'll make sure they're they're done. If that's you, your tendency is going to be to throw out verse 11, which speaks entirely about your identity, who God has made you to be and called you to be, and and what Peter has been talking about up to this point in the book uh, of 1 Peter. And you're just going to say, finally, we get to the things that I get to do. But don't disconnect verse 11 and verse 12. Because what Peter ultimately is saying is that as a believer, your life is to be marked first by different passions. And those different passions then lead to different conduct. And notice then what he says is the motivation for all this. He says, because there's going to be people out there who see you or hear you or observe you and think you're evildoers. It's an interesting language. There's going to be people around us who hear what we believe, and initially it will strike them as being not only strange, but wrong, offensive. It may seem backward to them, it may seem antiquated, it may seem indefensible according to modern cultural mores, or as in the case of these particular Christians, there may be just a whole bunch of people who don't even understand what Christianity is all about. Well, where do I get that? It comes from verse 15, which says this, for this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. One commentator that I read this week said it this way, that at this time, stories had circulated that Christians engaged in all manner of sin, even cannibalism at their church meetings. Even Tacitus, who was a responsible Roman historian, commented that they were, quote, loathed for their vices. Because the Christians would not worship the Roman gods, they were considered to be atheists. Because they participated in the communion table, which was representative of what Jesus Christ had said when he said, eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, the Romans around them looked at them and said, they must be cannibals. And Peter says, if you want to undo the misunderstanding of the world around them, the only way to do that is to live honorably among them and to do good deeds. Now again, list makers, pay attention to what he's saying. What is the purpose of these good deeds? Notice he does not connect this to your relationship or God's affection towards you in your relationship with him, but rather he connects it to this idea so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and by them glorify God. This is exactly the idea that led Martin Luther to quip that God doesn't need your good works, but your neighbor does. In other words, Christian, your standing before God is certain. 
It is the finished work of Jesus Christ alone that granted your forgiveness, imputed new life to you, that secured your adoption, that guarantees your future, your future resurrection. And no, no number of good deeds could earn that or secure that for you. Only Jesus can do that. Therefore, in the words of one theologian, the aim of our good works is horizontal, not vertical. We don't do good things to try to impress God. We don't do good things to try to make God love us more. That's impossible. If you have an infinite God who does things infinitely and pours out his infinite love on you, how in the world could he possibly love you more than he already does? No, the reason for these good deeds driven out of new passions and new desires is so that your neighbors can see your good works. And in seeing those, so that it can begin to correct their misunderstanding, so that in the day of visitation, according to this passage, which commentators disagree as to what exactly that means, but for what it's worth, my particular interpretation of that is that it's just a reference to the day in which God enlightens their eyes to see that when they see your good works on the day of visitation, everything that they had previously seen as being dissonant, broken, disconnected, unfamiliar, strange, about your life will suddenly begin to resonate. That some of these same people who had been the most outspoken critics of Christianity became the very people who started to glorify God in their own lives. And notice how he says this begins to apply, and verse 13 really kicks off a whole bunch of, a whole bunch of applications through verses, even ones that we're not going to get to this morning. But look where he starts. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Now, as Peter begins to extrapolate on this whole idea, he's going to talk ultimately about everything from government to occupation to marriage. But here, he starts off with earthly institutions. He starts with government, and his instruction is this, be subject to every human institution. In other words, recognize the authority that God has already placed in your life. Recognize the authorities that already exist. And particularly here, he calls out governmental authorities. And notice the language that he uses to define what government ought to be, at least on some level. This isn't a holistic understanding, but he says, or to governors as sent by God to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. That when government is functioning properly, there is this natural outworking of its institution that we find in verse 14. But then notice what he says we ought to do in verse 16. Live then as people who are free. Not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Peter starts by reminding these Christians, understand, brother, sister, you're free. You are free from guilt and condemnation. You are free from the wrath of God. You are free to live as people who belong to a perfect king. But in this life, we live as servants of God. Willful submission to a perfect creator and willing recognition and subjection to the authorities that he has allowed in this place. This blessed position of being able to be servants of an almighty God. And he says, here's in part how you can do that. We're going to move through these quickly, but I want you to see what he says. He says, first, honor everyone. 
In other words, be nice. That's ultimately what he's saying here. This word honor is just talking about the idea of giving someone their proper due, recognizing that people are created in the image of God, that people have inherent dignity and inherent worth, and treating them as such. And already we understand that the the, the need for this instruction must be because that natural inclination was not there on the part of these Christians to whom he's writing. It's certainly not always there on our part. Our temptation is not to honor everyone. Our temptation is to honor those who agree with us and think we're great. And everybody else can just kind of deal with it. But notice where he starts. He says, because you're free, because you're accepted perfectly by God, because the only being in the entire universe whose opinion of you counts already has told you that he loves you infinitely and accepts you perfectly and adopts you completely, you are now free to honor other people. Your citizenship, because it is not primarily in this world, means that you are not bound to the perspectives that allow one group of people to mistreat another group of people. We are enabled, understand this, like no one else in the world, to honor those, even those with whom we disagree. And that's fascinating. Because we live in a culture that talks all the time about kindness and acceptance and love and caring for people and providing for people and uplifting people and affirming people and that language is, is constant in our culture. But the fascinating thing is, without Jesus Christ, you have no ability to do any of that. By necessity, you will create your own moral structure by which people either qualify or disqualify themselves to that treatment. But true honor the ability to actually care for someone despite what you might think of their lifestyle or their background or their experiences or their belief system happens when you, as one created by God and loved by God, are able to look at them and see not only the externals or all of the markings or all of the things that you might look for as to whether or not this person is acceptable, but to see past and through all of that to the soul that God himself has created. To demonstrate a compassion and an honor for everyone. We are enabled to honor, to hold in right esteem as fellow image bearers of God. So he says, across the board, this is the application. Honor everyone. But second, love the brotherhood. He says, you, Christian, have a special relationship, a special obligation, a unique opportunity to love those with whom you share heavenly citizenship. And this has echoes in it of what Paul wrote in Galatians chapter 6 when he says, so then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. See, it's not that the church becomes a club. And it's not that the church becomes this kind of exclusive group where everyone's great and everyone's perfect and therefore deserving of your love. He's saying, no, what makes the brotherhood, the sisterhood, the family of God so deserving of love is that you share a bloodline. And in the same way that you love your family in a unique way, you are called to love your spiritual family in a unique way. Now, if you notice, there's an intensity building as Peter gives this instruction. It's going gonna, it's gonna to find its peak here as he addresses our relationship with God. So he says, first, honor everyone, love the brotherhood. Here, fear God. 
And you'll notice that increase in intensity, honor first, love second, fear third. And when he uses that word fear, it's really just going back to what we talked about in 1 Peter chapter 1. At the end of that passage, you can go back two weeks and listen to that message if you want to hear this. But this is what we talked about a few weeks ago where we talked about that idea of good fear. The recognition that the the creator God, the God who is all-powerful, omnipotent, right? omniscient and omnipresent, that that same God knows you and loves you intimately, it ought to create in our hearts a sense of proper or right fear, a reverence before God. And we would expect after this increasing intensity that whatever it is Peter is going to say last is going to kind of cap this conversation. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, but then notice what he says finally. Honor the emperor. He goes back to that very first word. He goes back to the same word that he uses to describe the honor that you ought to extend to everyone. Now, I think there's at least three implications of that observation. First is this, and it's really just repeating what Peter just said. We must, as believers, honor, have regard for, recognize the God-given role of those in leadership. Now, for some of us, immediately you can kind of feel something roiling up within you as you think about the potential applications of what that might mean in your life. But understand what it is that Peter's saying here. In the very same way that he's talking about honoring everyone, he's not necessarily saying that you agree with everyone or that that person always does the right thing. He's not saying that you have to like what they do. It doesn't even necessarily mean that we do everything that a human government says, particularly, by the way, when they, say, or when they, uh, when they threaten or limit the ability of Christians to do the first three things, Okay? I think that's an important piece not to miss in this. If honoring the emperor, in, this, in, our, in our application, if honoring the government means that by necessity in order to honor the government, we must not be able to honor everyone, love the brotherhood, or fear God, then inherently we ought not obey the instruction that is given by the government. But understand what he is saying. He's saying we do need to recognize that it is God himself who sends, in the word of Peter, words of Peter, who places these leaders. And in the Bible, we see all sorts of situations where God raises up and takes down leaders for his purposes. The question is not whether God places them. That's clear. The real question is, are they placed for the blessing or the correction of a people? Second, not only do we honor those in leadership, but second, we must not put our hope in governmental leaders. We must not put our hope in governmental leaders. We run through the same set of temptations every two to four years. This will be the election cycle where we get things right. This will be the election cycle where we fix what was wrong in the last administration. This will be the election cycle where we get the right person in the right place and we get the next great candidate. We'll get the next bill to go through Congress, whatever it happens to be. And our tendency is to put our hope and our confidence and our happiness and our joy and our futures in the hands of those who ultimately end up or do not end up in positions of authority. It's a very natural human thing to do. We find the nation of Israel doing it all the time in the Old Testament. But understand the instruction is to fear God and honor the emperor. That fear piece is far more important 
recognizing the perfect sovereignty of a loving God who does everything for his glory and for our ultimate joy. It's what Jesus speaks to in Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, when he says, and do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. So understand what he's saying. We must honor those in leadership. We must not put our hope in governmental leaders. But third, and this is an important, an important addition to the second, we must participate in our political process. In other words, understanding the sovereignty of God does not dismiss us from participation in our own political process. Here's a quote from a theologian named Wayne Grudem who wrote a book called Politics According to the Bible. Here's what he says in that book. Christians should seek to influence civil government according to God's moral standards and God's purposes for government as revealed in the Bible when rightly understood. Now listen to his clarification. To influence does not mean angry, belligerent, intolerant, judgmental, red-faced, and hate-filled influence, but rather winsome, kind, thoughtful, loving, persuasive influence that is suitable to each circumstance and that always protects the other person's right to disagree, but that is also uncompromising about the truthfulness and moral goodness of the teaching of God's words. Now, that is an incredibly hard balance to keep, admittedly, and it takes wisdom to figure out how that actually plays itself out in our lives, but understand that we are not without example. In fact, we find all kinds of examples in this all throughout Scripture. In the Old Testament, we find Esther bravely using her position to advocate for the safety of God's people. We find Joseph faithfully enduring hardship until he was ultimately honored by the Pharaoh and used then his influential position to save not only his family, but to even bless a nation that did not love God. Paul did not hesitate to exert his rights as a Roman citizen to demand fair treatment at the hands of unjust government officials. These were people who loved God faithfully, but found themselves working in the middle of a worldly and godless political system, and yet through their presence in that system and through their wise application of their influence and through their winsome speech, they are given, they are given opportunity to influence the authorities for the sake of God's blessing, or for the sake, rather, of, of blessing God's people and accomplishing His will. And much like each of these examples, though our citizenship is ultimately in another kingdom, we have been placed here purposefully, intentionally, to do his goodwill. Now, there's all kinds of applications of that big point that we didn't even touch today. When ought Christians disobey? When ought Christians protest? What, to what extent ought Christians be involved in various various applications within the political system, and we don't have time to get into that today, though prayerfully and hopefully we will at some point. But understand that what Peter is indicating here is that in all of this, what we are recognizing is that we have our citizenship first and foremost in another kingdom. And that is in part what we recognize when we come to the Lord's table. See, this meal that we're about to participate in, this remembrance sacrament of the Lord's Supper is meant to cause us to remember and to look. It causes us to look back. It causes us to look back at Jesus who presented himself as the sacrificial lamb of the world by which all who believed in him would be delivered. It causes us also not only to look back but to look around. 
to realize that we've been drawn into communion with one another, not just with God himself, although certainly that is the most important application we can walk away with, but also to recognize that he is building us up into a spiritual house, as we talked about last week. And lastly, it causes us to look forward. Because as Jesus distributed these elements at the Last Supper, he said this phrase, for I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. In other words, there is a sense when we come to this meal that we are being reminded of home. Our eyes and our attention and our affections are being pointed forward to the day when we will rejoin Jesus Christ, where in his presence, he for the first time since the Last Supper pours the wine and breaks the bread and we celebrate with him. See, there's a day coming where we'll be reunited with our king, a homecoming celebration with King Jesus as the guest of honor. So what we're going to do this morning is participate in this meal that causes us to look. And what we're going to do is take just a few minutes to be still and to be silent. We're going to take about two or three minutes. I realize for some people that feels like a long time, and I get it. But our encouragement to you during that time is to spend time with the Father, to probably or likely at least for maybe the first time in the course of your week be still and to be with him. And every time we do this, we have kids in the room, and that's fine, and kids make noise, and it's not a problem because we're a family. But then what we're going to do is when the music begins, you can come forward, receive one of each of the elements, the, the bread and the wine or the juice, and then please return to your seats. Come down the center aisle and then go back around the outside. Receive those elements, and then please wait. We'll take those together in just a moment as we remember this meal together. But let's pray. God, we thank you for your love and your affection and your care for us. We thank you that though we are strangers and aliens here, we have a perfect home awaiting us. We thank you, God, that you have not given us a list of demands or commands, but left us impotent to obey, but that you first gave us new passions and new desires and new affections, new longings and new hopes that drive our behavior in this life. We thank you that you are not expectant or dependent on good deeds in order to distribute love to us, as if your love is some sort of an exchange, but that your love for us is so perfect that we are then freed to do good deeds, good works for the sake of those around us so that our lives may demonstrate an integrity and a purity and a love for God that points other people to their only hope, which is you. So God, I pray that you would do the work in us that only you can do, that we would give you the honor and the glory for it that only you deserve, and that as we come to this table, we would be reminded that we look back to the perfect and finished work of Jesus Christ, the resurrection of Jesus Christ that guarantees our own future eternal resurrection, and God, that enables us here and now in this place, in this time, to be a family devoted to you. And it's in your beautiful name that we pray. Amen.